In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, Father, I've been in the man in the garden. God, help me to be the man in the garden. Father, give me the strength to serve you today, but not just today. How about tomorrow and the next day? God, speak to me through your word. Fill my heart with your Holy Spirit. Take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Teach me to cry out to you when I am in need. Teach me to not try to solve my own problems, but to just put them on you. Heavenly Father, send forth your Holy Spirit to give us the, the inspiration that you desire. And I ask our Blessed Mother to whisper the names of these men in the year of her son, the King, that he will look down upon them with great favor and bestow his grace. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I know that you have a, uh, a special uh, ceremony with bread and wine for communion tonight, you know, fellowship. And so I want to touch briefly on uh, an aspect uh, that relates to that that you might not have heard of. And then I'm going to move into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the showbread? The showbread. The bread of the presence. Back in Exodus, and when God brought the people out and he first came to them in Exodus 19 and, and bestowed his first covenant love with them, one of the things he did was he took Moses, Nadab, and Abihu up the mountain after he, he uh, confronted them. And there it says that they had a feast. We can see this in Exodus chapter 24 verses 9 and following. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They had a feast with the Lord God face to face on the mountain of God, Sinai. Now what's interesting is the ancient rabbis link this to the showbread, the bread of the presence. Once the tabernacle was built, there was the Holy of Holies, this cubed shaped room. And then outside of that room was the sanctuary. And then outside of that was the court where the, where the altar of God was. In that sanctuary, you found the golden menorah, the seven candle, uh, candelabra. It's the, the one depicted in the, uh, the triumph of Titus in Rome, of the Romans carrying it away after they destroyed the temple. And then you also had a golden table, that on this table were 12 cakes of bread and little cups of flagons of wine. Now what's interesting about that is Every week, the priests would have to bring up new bread 
they'd have to consume the old bread, consecrate the new bread, and place it out onto this golden table. When they first brought the new bread out, they would put it on a sort of a marble table. Once it was consecrated, then it could only be on the golden table. And whenever that bread was there, a lamp had to be lit. A, a candle had to be lit. The menorah had to be lit when that bread was there. When the bread wasn't there, it had to be extinguished. So this is very, very particular bread. The ancient rabbis link this to this feast in Exodus 24. It was a memorial offering, re remembering, reliving that experience of that communion with God face to face. Dr. Brant Petrie talks about how special this is. There were three feasts every year where every Israelite male had to come to Jerusalem, come to wherever the Ark of, the, of God was, and, and celebrate the feast. Dr. Brant Petrie is a, uh, a Catholic biblical scholar teaching in Louisiana at a seminary there. In this book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Unlocking the Secrets of the Last Supper, is an awesome book. You should get it. It is just an amazing, amazing insight. I learned so many things just from this one book. But on page 130, he says, quote, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, according to both the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, at each of these feasts, the priests in the temple would do something remarkable. They would remove the golden table of the bread of the presence, literally that means the bread of the face of God, from within the holy place, so the Jewish pilgrims could see it. When they removed the holy bread, the priests would elevate it and say the following words. They, the priests, used to lift the golden table up, exhibit the bread of the face of God to those who came, saying, Behold, God's love for you. Ponder that for a moment. Did they have any idea what was coming? We've already talked about the bread and wine of Melchizedek, the bread and wine of David and the significance of the covenant relationships that were formed around bread and wine. So your bonding tonight in the bread and wine has great symbolic meaning, rich in its, in its understanding. And Jesus brings it to a much higher level because he gives himself as bread and wine. But this foreshadowing in this bread of the presence, the bread of the face of God, lifting it up, behold, God's love for you. That's going to actually tie in to what I hope to talk about next. You see, Jesus takes his 12 into the upper room. 12 men, like the 12 princes Moses had in Exodus 24, setting them up on 12 pillars, offering 12 sacrifices, and taking the blood and sprinkling it on the people and saying, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Jesus says this in Luke 22:19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. He's reconstituting the 12 princes of, of Israel. The 12 priests who participate, not in their own priesthood, but in the priesthood of the firstborn son. Who is the firstborn son? Jesus Christ. 
It is his priesthood. These men participate in it by offering what? Bread and wine. That becomes what? God's love for them. How? Because it is his body and it is his blood. Now there was a, an Old Testament uh, uh, prescription that you could not eat the blood of an animal. Why? Because that was the life of the animal. If you were to kill a sheep and drink its blood, would you have life in you? No. You would have death in you because it does not possess life like that. What if you killed God and drank its blood, his blood? What would that be? That is life. So you want his blood in you. You want his bread in you, which is his body, because that's what John 6 is. It is his life. That's how you will have immortal life. That is the fruit of the tree that gives us immortal life. So ponder that bread of the face of God, that God loves us so much that he was telling us all along the way, what am I going to do? I'm setting you up. I am laying the foundations. The day is coming. Bear with me. Stay with me. It's all going to work out. Unfortunately, the Israelites just wouldn't stay with the plan. Now I want to talk about how Jesus interrupts the Passover meal that night. You see, there are four cups to a Passover meal. Anybody here been to a Seder? So you've had the four cups. Jesus blesses the third cup and consecrates that his blood. The fourth cup is called the cup of consummation. He doesn't drink that cup in the upper room. Instead, they sing a hymn, the great Hillel, Psalm 118, and then they go out in the middle of the night across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. He goes out at night across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. This is very specific language. It has a lot of, of typological understanding for the first century Jew. He moves further up the mountain with his three. He leaves the rest in one spot, then he moves further up into the Mount of Olives with, with Peter, James, and John. And then he begins to grow very, very sorrowful. And it freaks his disciples out. For the longest time, brothers in Christ, I struggled with this, the whole Gethsemane thing. I struggled with it. How, how could God cry out in sorrow? How could God look and appear so weak? I mean, is he God or not? I know he's human. I get it. But really? And once since he is perfectly human and so perfectly human, he experiences humanity just like the rest of us. Sorrow is a part of that. So it doesn't make him any less of God because he exhibits sorrowfulness. But it's not just that. It's that, but it's more. He has a reason. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38 and following. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. The mystics of the church have uh, given us an insight into what exactly was kind of going on there in the Garden of Gethsemane. From a spiritual point of view, God, Jesus had a test. The same test as Adam in a garden. Save your flesh or save their souls. So Jesus is comprehending all the sins that we commit. Die on the cross? Have your flesh torn from your body? Why? Don't you know what that Joe McLean is like? Don't you see him spitting in your face with every sin he commits? Don't you get it? He will betray you and you're going to die? Why? They don't deserve it. Let them burn. Unlike the first Adam, who in a garden by a tree faced with the serpent said nothing. This Adam in a garden by a tree faced with the serpent cries out to God with loud cries and lamentations to the one who is worthy to save him. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you have this comparison, this contrast. Jesus breaks the silence in a garden. He cried out. If only Adam had cried out, what would our life be like today? So Christ cries out. He was keeping and protecting you and me. We are his precious ones. We are his, his bride we enter into a one flesh communion with our Lord that is more real than any sexual relationship you will ever have with your spouse. You will never be more one with another person than you are with Christ in the Eucharist. And he's there in the garden crying out, not my will, but thy will be done. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me to drink? He cries out for you. What cup is that? It's the fourth cup. Why? It's the cup of consummation. Because he knows where that fourth cup is. It's on the cross. He knows what it means. It means death. It means agony. But not my will, but thy will be done. John 18, verse 2 and following. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, Ego e me, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when he said to them, Ego e me, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which, ha which he had spoken. Of those whom thou gavest me, I lost not one. In one sense, you're that one. You're the one. Now literally, he's talking about his disciples. But spiritually, you're the one. You're the one he hasn't lost. You're the one he's dying for right now. He stands before the face of God in heaven, the heavenly Father, as a lamb standing as if slain. Revelation chapter 5. Why? Because no greater love has a man than to lay down his life for a friend. Do you know that you're the friend of God? Do you have any idea that he would lay down his life now Verse 10, then Simon Peter, this is, this is my man right here. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave's uh, ear and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. That's awesome, you know. This man, he's the only one of the 12 to get out of a boat, walk on water, drowned in the process, <laughs> you know. He's the only one to pull out a sword and try to fend off Jesus. He's the only one in the, in the room that night who said, Lord, I'll go to death for you. Jesus knew what kind of man he was dealing with. But I can relate to that kind of man. I want to be the man in the garden. I do, but I'm not. I'm the man in the garden. It's just the wrong garden. And it's the wrong man. But God knows. And he makes up for what we lack. Right? So, it's good to have the exuberance and zeal of Peter. But compare and contrast what Peter does to what Judas does. Both betray our Lord, but only one returns to him. Who are you? Peter or Judas? God loves you enough to forgive you if you'll only come back. Verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized him and bound him. So again, when Adam in the cool of the day is confronted by God, what does he do? He hides in a bush because he is living in sin. And he fears the presence of God. What does Jesus do when confronted by this ominous force coming out at night with torches in the cool of the day? He hides in a... No, wait a minute. No, wait, he doesn't hide. 
he goes out to confront them. Notice that contrast. This is a new Adam. This is a new garden. He's doing what the first Adam should have done and never did. He goes out to confront them. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. The great I am from the burning bush. That's why they fall down. The blasphemy in their mind must have been like, this man is the biggest blasphemer we've ever heard. He claims to be God. Take me, but let them go. Now, the reason why that's kind of a cool deal is because we've seen all of this before. At least we have if we've read through salvation history. In the passion of David, actually, if you read through 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 20, there's an episode there where David is deposed as king by his son, Absalom. Absalom tries to take over the kingdom. And so David goes through a passion of his own. Absalom gathers an army. David flees from his throne as a result in Jerusalem. Like Peter, who swore that he would die for Jesus if necessary. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 21, there's someone that's close to David who says the same kind of thing. But Isaiah answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Like Jesus, David and his court crossed the Kidron Valley weeping and sorrowful. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. And all the country wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. That's interesting. You have a king, the Messiah, crossing the Kidron, weeping. Like Jesus who took, the, uh, took up his disciples up the Mount of Olives, so did David. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up, weeping as they went. <clears throat> like Jesus whose disciples, his very friend, his advisor, Judas, betrayed him. So too does David have a close friend who betrays him. Just like Jesus who discovers this betrayal on the side of the Mount of Olives, so does David. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 31. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Like Judas, who hatched the plan to lead this large cohort in the middle of the night with torches, clubs, and lanterns to come out and to strike the shepherd and scatter the flock, taking only Jesus, so does Ahithophel hatch a plan. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1-4. through 4. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men. And I will set out and pursue David tonight, at night. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down the king only. 
And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Like Judas, when the plan backfired, he set his affairs in order and hung himself. So too with the betrayer of David. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and went off home to his own city, and he set his house in order and hanged himself. Like Jesus who took the abuse, the insults, the blows, and more, and did not return evil for evil, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So too does David not return evil for evil when he is cursed at by one of his own. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 and following. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and of all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said, as he cursed, Be gone, be gone, you man of blood, you worthless fellow. And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me today. Our Lord is a new Adam. He is a new David, a new Messiah. He stands in a garden and he speaks loudly, not only to us, but to those Jews in the first century and the Jews today and all men today. He is everything salvation history has been building up to. He is the consummation of history itself. This is his story. That is history. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Question, what is the fruit of a grain of wheat? Bread. Bread is the fruit of a grain of wheat. And unless that grain falls into the earth and dies, it can't bring forth that bread. What is that bread? It is the bread of the presence of God. It is the Eucharist. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name, thy Shem. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, 
and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said they had heard thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was about to die. The Garden of Gethsemane, the encounter with Satan, save your flesh or save the souls of all mankind. Adam only had his soul and the soul of his wife. Christ has everyone else's. And you have Satan whispering into his ear, they're not worth it. They're not worth it. Let them burn. He's right. I'm not worth it. But Jesus says, you are. Because you're mine. In my flock, I don't lose anyone. I will lay down my life for you. So brothers, I want you to meditate upon this. I want you to ask yourself, am I the man in the garden? How can I be the man in the garden? How can I walk away from this conference, this, this retreat weekend, being the man in the garden? How do I cry out to God for all of my troubles? How do I know and understand that it's not my battle to fight, that it's his? I simply have to show up and trust in him. Thank you.